Uh, before that, if anybody uh, needs a physical Bible, please just put your hand up and somebody, uh, Flora is at the back. Anybody needs a Bible, just put up your hand. Flora can pass out one. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to read your word and, and listen to your word together as a church. We pray that you bless uh, the reading and the message. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that, day, the day, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and his services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and settlers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they, were no long, they no longer came on the Sabbath. 
Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own tasks. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. This is God's word. Well, keep your Bibles open on Nehemiah 13. We'll be looking back at that passage. Um, and if you don't have your Bibles with you, it'll be coming up on the screen as well. We all have things we want to change about ourselves, don't we? Things that, you know, we wish were different. When I asked this question to my life group earlier this week, we had a lot of different replies. Uh, they range from things like, oh, I wish I could read more, uh, to things like, I wish I was taller so I could dunk. Um, I won't tell you who that was. Peter Chai. <coughs> Peter Chai. Uh, we all want different things, don't we? I don't know what it is. You know, we want to eat healthier. We want to exercise more. Uh, we want to be uh, more disciplined. We like to have more self-control. We love to be able to sleep on time. Uh, we love to not be so addicted to our phones. Uh, we'd love to be able to not shout at our kids and just lose it at our kids. We love to be able to not be so tempted by sin, to not be so proud. There are a few from my list. I wonder if any of those resonate with you. Friends, we want to change, but I think we all know that real change is so hard, isn't it? It's so difficult. It's so hard to keep resolutions and to keep up good habits and to break bad habits, but I want to tell you today that change is really possible. It is possible. When it comes particularly to living a life for God, living a life for God, there is great hope, and the best thing is that it doesn't come from us. That's what I want to show you today. So just to set the context of where we're at, uh, we're reading, we're, we have a reading from the book of Nehemiah, and what's happened is that the exiles, the nation of Israel, they've been exiled, and they've coming back to their homeland to rebuild. They've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, the city slowly being restored, and what's happened, um, as Pastor Matt told us last week, is that they've all gathered together after this has happened, and they've heard God's word being read out, the scriptures are being read out by Ezra, the priest and the other priest there. And what happens is the people, as you can see, they weep, 
they weep because they've realized all the things that they should have been doing, that they haven't been doing, they haven't been following God's ways. The priests tell them, well, we, let's celebrate God's goodness, so they, they do celebrate. But then in chapter 9, the next chapter, there comes an appropriate time of confession, weeping, being broken before God as they keep remembering the times that they failed over and over and over again, but also remembering God's grace to them over and over and over again. And the end of chapter 9 actually ends with a commitment, a, uh, a commitment, a promise to God that we will change our ways. God, we're going to do this. Sort of like a New Year's resolution. A resolution, a commitment that things are going to change. And we're going to see what they commit to. So our point one, the commitment. God's people actually commit to three different things. Uh, the first one is this, no intermarriage. So this is from Nehemiah 10. So just have a look on the screen. Nehemiah 10, verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. And this is the first promise, no intermarriage. This is important because over and over and over again, God's people have been led astray by following the gods of foreign nations. It isn't that God is racist, he doesn't like other nations. Right from the start, he's had a picture to include all nations in his blessings. This is a concern for the welfare of the people and, the wealth and a concern for his own glory. As people are unfaithful, over and over again, they've been following the false gods of Moab, Ammon, Ashdod, Egypt, all the nations around them. They were unfaithful. They abandoned God. And this was a serious sin. So the people committed to not intermarry, to stay devoted to God, a great commitment. The second commitment they made was this, keeping the Sabbath. Let me read to you from Nehemiah 10, verse 31. When the neighboring peoples brought merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. Now, the Sabbath was when, um, so they committed to keeping the Sabbath. <laughs> the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a day where one out of every seven days, they would commit to not working, not doing, not doing anything. Um, uh, uh, instead, it was a day of worship, a day of dependence on God, a day of stopping. The word Sabbath actually means to cease, to stop. Yeah. But... Why was this so important? The most important thing was that it was a marker of who they were, a marker of their identity. If you didn't Sabbath as one of God's people, it was essentially saying this, I don't want to be part of God's people. I don't want, I don't want, to, do the, I want to do my own thing. I don't want to depend on God. I don't want to be counted as one of God's people. This was really serious. So the people recommitted. We're going to Sabbath. We're going to Sabbath. That's the second commitment. The second and the third commitment was this, to take care of the temple. Let me read to you from verse 39 of chapter 10. The people of Israel, including the Levites, had to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests and gatekeep the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, this was very important. The temple was a center of worship for Israel. It, presented God's, it represented God's presence with his people. And the Levites were the tribe of priests that were uh, tasked with caring for the temple. And they were to be provided for so they could take care of the temple, facilitate worship. In fact, the people gave a tenth of all they had to the temple to uh, provide for the Levites. The very best, actually, the first fruits. So you might have heard of the tithing, yeah. So the Levites could do ministry. People tithed, gave their best. But... 
That's the commitment that they make because the temple's so important. Now, Israel commits to these three changes because they have a deep urgency to change. They see they haven't been living like this and they want to make things different, right? They can see if they don't change, actually, that it will actually lead to disaster. And this needs to be the starting point. Let me pause here and go, this needs to be the starting point with any real change. If we want lasting change in our lives, this needs to be the starting point. We need to actually be deeply convinced that it's necessary. We need to actually see the urgency of change. We, we can't just go, oh yeah, it's an optional extra. If I don't change, it's actually fine. If I change, that'll be a bonus, but it's actually okay where I am. That won't lead to change. Israel had a deep conviction. Um, think about this, it's like flossing. It's like flossing. I know there's a lot of dentists here, so I'm trying to help you today. Um, we all know we should do it, right? We all know we should do it, um, but we don't, right? Or at least I don't, regularly. It's so hard to make that change, to floss every single day. It takes so much effort. But let me tell you, when I go to my dentist and he tells me, you've got another cavity, then I go and floss. I go home and I floss regularly because I realize that this is what's going to happen if I don't floss. There's consequences. There's, you know, there's, there's something bad that happens that comes out of this. At least I floss for two weeks, then I might stop again. But <laughs> that's my lack of discipline there. Real change takes a deep conviction that it's actually needed. You need to see what will happen if you don't change, that there's actually consequences. Right? But let me tell you something. That's, that's where you start, but let me tell you something. That alone is not enough. That alone is not enough. And we'll point to the disappointment. As we fast forward a little bit, we hear Nehemiah has taken a short trip back to the king of Persia. So if you haven't been here for the series, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Uh, a high official in his court, and he's in Jerusalem at the moment, but he's taken a trip back to Persia. And he comes back to Jerusalem after a bit of a trip, and he returns to a mess, a mess. Firstly, the temple. So Nehemiah 13, verse 10, you can have a look at it in your Bibles, if you've got it open there, but it's coming up on the screen also. This is what Nehemiah sees as he comes back. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Essentially what's happened is that the priests, the people that were supposed to be taking care of the people, hadn't, uh, the temple had not been provided for. Did you notice that in the text? They hadn't been provided for. So what, what does that mean? They can't live, so they had to return home to their secular jobs, essentially, which means they, they had to do their farming and things like that. They couldn't take care of the temple. And the temple was a complete mess in disarray. It wasn't being taken. There was nothing happening. And actually, worship ground to a halt. This is serious. No priest means no worship. On top of that, if you heard in our Bible reading before, if you saw early in, in chapter 13, they had enemies of God living in the temple. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was the guy that actually was trying to kill them, somehow rented a room in the temple, got a free room in the temple. And what's going on here? The temple's a complete disgrace. So the t commitment to take care of the temple, we see is a complete failure. How about the Sabbath commitment? Let's have a look at that one. Nehemiah 13, verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of other loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. 
Sorry. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Here's what's going on on the Sabbath. They committed to rest, to not do work. What's going on? They're making wine. They're making money, selling their goods. They're out shopping. Black Friday sales. Let's get out there. Are they keeping the Sabbath? No. Nehemiah says, in fact, they're desecrating the Sabbath. That's a big word, desecrating the Sabbath. Another failure. How about the next one? Let's see how they go. No intermarriage. Big commitment, no intermarriage. This is a huge root of their problems. Well, Nehemiah 13, verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath to God in, in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughter in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage uh, for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriage like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you are doing all, these, all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Another failure. Another failure from Israel. They were, being inter, they were intermarrying. They were being led into sin by their foreign wives. And that resulted in the biggest sin of all, which is this unfaithfulness to God unfaithfulness to God. They were cheating on God. And friends, let me speak to this. This is still relevant today. I know there's some of you sitting here today probably thinking, man, this is way too strict. God is way too strict about this stuff. Who cares if I was to marry someone who isn't a Christian? Does it really matter that much? Trust me, when I first heard this, this is how I felt. I was like, this is a bit outrageous, a bit too serious. But I want to let you know something. God doesn't command this because He's some sort of killjoy right? He doesn't want you to have a good life or a happy life. God gives us this command because He loves you. Because He loves you. He doesn't want you to turn away from Him. He doesn't want you to head down the path of destruction. He knows how easily we are led astray, so easily. And let me tell you, as a pastor, unfortunately, I've seen this happen over and over again. In this passage in Nehemiah, it particularly highlights the impact on the family as well. Uh, did you notice that in verse 4, it said that half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they didn't even know the language of the Jews. This is saying this, there's a whole generation of people who aren't following God's ways. All the kids, you know, half of them are like, they don't even know who God is. I mean, what do you expect if one parent follows God and one parent's following the God of Ashdod? This is not God's good design for marriage. Friends, please, as your pastor, I plead with you. Plead, I plead with you. Please choose God first. Please choose God first. Love Him more than any potential partner. 
even when you are considering who you should date, because that is a relationship that is so intimate and leads towards marriage. For the sake of your soul, for the sake of God's glory, please, love God more. Now, as we come back to the text, uh, we see three commitments from Israel, and we see three failures. Now, I'm sure as we hear about this, we're a little disappointed, but I'd, I'd say that most of us aren't surprised at this. You're probably not surprised that Israel failed as well, because you've seen their track record. They failed over and over and over again. They just can't obey, no matter how hard they try. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because their problem is not ultimately an external behavior problem. The problem with Israel is an internal heart problem. It's not an external problem, it's an internal problem. And they were just trying to fix the external. Um, Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine, um, has anyone had some off milk before? Anyone had off milk? Kids, anyone drank off milk before? I've accidentally drank it before, it's not not nice. Um, Imagine if I had a bottle of off milk, it was rotten, it had gone sour, and I needed to fix this problem. How do I fix this problem? And I thought, I know what I'd do. I'm just going to put it into a new container. Yep. And no one will ever know the difference. So we'll put it into this new container. Um, it looks good, looks nice and fresh. Uh, it's the same milk, but I put it into this new container. And then I offered it to you to drink. Would you drink that milk? Would you drink that milk? Huh? Kids, would you drink that milk? Huh? I don't think you would drink that milk. I, you shouldn't by the way, you shouldn't. Don't, don't trust me if I offer you milk, okay? If you poured that milk out, would fresh milk come out? The change has purely been external. Internally, nothing's changed, which means the only thing that can come out is the same thing that was there in the first place. Nothing's going to change that way. It's an external fix for an internal problem. And our internal heart problem is, a one, that, is one that has cursed humankind ever since... Adam and Eve first disobeyed in the Garden of Israel. The internal problem is the problem of sin in our hearts, the problem of sin in Israel's hearts, the problem of wanting to follow our own desires and not God. God's people, no matter how hard they try, they cannot fix this, which is why they need a bigger hope, and which is our our next point, the hope. And we're going to look at a passage from Ezekiel 36. This is the hope of change. Have a look at this passage. This is a promise made by one of the prophets, okay? And this is a promise that Israel was reading, yeah, to God's people. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove you from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. As we finish the book of Nehemiah, we see some of this prophecy has come true. We see they're back in the promised land, but we see their attempt at reformation and change, complete failure. They can't change, which is why this prophecy is needed to point to a bigger hope, to point to a bigger hope. Firstly, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. The prophecy promises forgiveness, cleansing of sin. 
And this is so important because they're disobeying over and over. They need forgiveness. God's mercy is promised. But this isn't all. There's a promise of a new heart and a new spirit. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Here's the promise for Israel. This isn't just a change of heart. Do you know? It's not just a change of heart. It's a complete new heart. It's a heart transplant. The old is out. The new is in. Here's the thing about stone hearts. Stone hearts are hard, right? Stone hearts don't take in God's word. Stone hearts are proud. They don't listen. They don't change. And most of all, stone hearts, they're dead. They can't function like hearts. They can't provide life. They don't work. But hearts of flesh, that's what's promised. A heart of flesh. They're pumping life-giving blood all over the body. And they do so because they take in the life-giving words of God. They're soft to the Scriptures. They're soft to change. They are humble, not proud. And this is the heart that is needed for true change to happen. But the promise doesn't end there. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Hand in hand with the new heart comes what? A new spirit. A spirit that works to transform people from the inside out. A spirit that works to transform desires so that they may want to follow God deeply but also are empowered to do so, to obey Him. A new heart, a new spirit. This is what's promised so that they're able to obey in a way that they've never been able to do before. And these are the two ingredients that are needed to see true, lasting change. The Jews back in um, 450 BC, around the time this was happening, they never got to see this prophecy fulfilled, but guess what? We do. We see all God's promises fulfilled in Christ. Jesus fulfills these these promises to us. The promise of cleansing of our impurities, we see this fulfilled when Jesus goes to the cross and he pays the price for our sins, where by his death we are forgiven There's no more penalty for us. He cleanses us. We see on the cross forgiveness poured out, mercy poured out. We see that now because of the cross. Guess what? Before God, our status is that we are clean. We're seen as clean. I'm going to use some big words now, guys. I'm going to teach you some big words, some doctrine, right? This is what we call the doctrine of positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. Being declared holy or clean before God once and for all. All right? That before God, because of what Jesus has done, you are now clean. That's how he sees you. You're now clean. But how about the promise of a new heart and a new spirit? Well, we see this fulfilled when Jesus Christ rises from the grave. He ascends into heaven, and he doesn't leave us alone. But what does he do? He pours out his spirit on us all. In Acts 2, we see the day of Pentecost, where the spirit's poured out. The, uh, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts. And the spirit lives in us and transforms our desires and empowers us to fight sin. This is what we call the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. The word sanctification means to be made holy. And it means that day by day, little by little, we're progressively being made more holy, more clean. So I want you to understand those terms because this helps us understand how good the gospel is. The good news of the gospel is that we are sanctified We are made holy. We are clean. Once and for all, 
in the cross, and also progressively through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we keep walking this walk. That's the good news of the gospel. But here's what I think is the problem. I'm not sure we fully believe this. I think we sort of believe the positional sanctification part. We believe that we're forgiven in Christ, that there's no condemnation for us, but are we captivated by that truth? Are we captivated by that truth? Uh, do you actually believe that when we, are at our, when we were at our absolute worst, Jesus came and died for us and we did nothing to earn that? Does that capture your heart? That now our position is as children of God who are clean and forgiven and dearly loved. We should be waking up each day rejoicing for that gift. That's where it starts. But where I think we really struggle is with the progressive sanctification part. I'm not sure we believe that we can really change. I'm not sure we believe we can really change. That we can resist temptation. That we can live a godly, that we can obey God. And I get it. I get it. Our experience so often is that we fail at obeying God. We try so hard and we just keep failing. We can't stop sinning. So we read the story of Israel and we go, yep, I get it, Israel. That's just like us, right? We resonate with that story. Yeah, we, you know, you, you're trying really hard, but you just can't, can't quite obey God. But we need to understand something important, friends. We are not like them. We are not like them. They did not have Jesus. They did not have the once and all forgiveness of sins. They did not have new hearts. They did not have new spirits. We do. We do. Which means that we can change in a way that was never, ever possible for them. We are not slaves to sin anymore. Sin is not our master. Jesus is our Lord. And I wonder, do you really believe this? Friends, what we need to believe is this. Change doesn't come from bigger effort. Change comes from deeper dependence. Let me say that again. Change doesn't come from bigger effort. Change doesn't come from deeper dependence. We all want to change. And the way we do that often is we try harder. We grit our teeth. We clench our fists. We're going to be different this year. New Year's resolution. Here's my goal. We want to stop thinking about money so much. We want to stop looking at porn. We want to stop losing our temper at our kids. We want to start reading our Bibles. We want to share. We want to start sharing about Jesus, being brave enough for that. We want to fully put God at the center of our lives. But it seems like we just can't do it. And I wonder if that's because we're depending too much on our own power and not enough on God's power. If you are a follower of Christ, remember this. You have been forgiven. You have been given a new heart. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. This is the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Imagine what He could do for your life if you've just depended on Him more. Friends, it's a weird thing, isn't it, that as Christians, we're fully happy and convinced to, um, that, yeah, we're saved by grace, that we do nothing, you know, when it comes to being saved, but then when it comes to actually changing ourselves, then God's sort of out of the picture. We're just like, you know, don't worry about that. We're saved by grace, but we are changed by grace as well. God needs to be the one that changes us. Change doesn't come from bigger effort. Change comes from deeper dependence. Now, I'm not saying um, be lazy, okay? 
God calls us to be active in the sanctification process. He calls us to put off the old, put on the new. I'm also not saying that we will achieve perfection this side of heaven. We won't be perfect this side of heaven. We will stumble and fall. But I want you to know something. I want you to know that you can change. You can change. And God wants you to change. I'm convinced of this because he's given you a new heart and a new spirit. God wants you to change. And you can take hold of this power, the spirit living with you through prayer. Not just occasional flippant prayer, but deeply dependent prayer. Prayer is saying this to God. God, I want to change, but I can't do this by myself. I need your help. And guess what? He promises to give that to you. Let me finish on this first. One of my favorites, actually, Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Such a wonderful verse. Just look at those words. Friends, when was the last time you were broken before God's throne of grace, asking for his help to change? Recognizing what an immense sinner you are and that without him you are absolutely helpless, absolutely helpless. And then finding his comfort and mercy in the promise that he will help you. He will give you grace and mercy to help you change. He will be there in your time of need. It's great you came today. We have a chance to do that later in our Thy Kingdom prayer, uh, Thy Kingdom Come prayer event, where we get to just come before the throne of grace and ask God for help. And this is the stance we need if we want to see deep transformation in our lives, friends, because this is deeper faith. It's from this stance that the Holy Spirit will do mighty things to help you overcome the sins in your life and to help you obey God and bring Him much glory, honor, and praise. It will be His timing. Change might be slow. We will stumble. But give thanks to God that the ultimate assurance is not in your own works, but in the work of Jesus Christ. Let us depend more deeply on Him, both for our positional sanctification and our progressive sanctification. Let me pray. Father God, we're so thankful to you that you haven't left us alone, that the Holy Spirit lives within us if we've come to you and trusted in you. Thank you that we have new hearts, that we have a new spirit, that we are clean in your eyes and may all of this enable us to change, to live a life that is worthy of you, to glorify you. And we thank you for your grace and mercy in the times that we do fall short. Thank you that we are loved nonetheless because of what Christ has done. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, take some time to reflect now. Maybe in this moment you want to say a prayer to God. You want to start depending on Him a little bit more. You want to bring before a sin in your heart or a new commitment that you have. So let's spend a few minutes doing that. Spend some time praying to God. Ask for His help.